Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Good morning. Please stand for the reading of the word. This morning's scripture is found in Psalm chapter 103. Psalm chapter 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting on everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul.
Happy anniversary to GCA. Yesterday was the 22nd anniversary of our first meeting here in this building. So we've actually been here 22 years just waiting for Paige to show up. That's, that's really the only reason we've been waiting this long. So happy anniversary. Back when, um, do you mind if I talk about us for just a moment? Because I'm, I'm full of memories this morning. Back when we first occupied this building, there were just a series of events that took place that were just really so astounding, so miraculous, that it was impossible to deny that God was in it, that God was for us. And I've told that story many times through the years of all the things that occurred. The little group of us that were meeting in my living room at the time should never have been able to purchase this property, this building. We didn't anywhere near have the finances to pull this off. And yet, here we are 22 years later. I have tried to keep in mind through all these years that this is God's enterprise. If he wants it to work, it's going to work. If he wants to shut it down, he'll shut it down. We live truly, genuinely on whatever God provides for us through the giving of people who are either in the room or who listen online. You know that I don't teach tithing. I don't beat on people and say, you got to give us money or we're going under. It has always been my opinion that if people appreciated what we were doing, that they would support it the same way that they would support anything else that they like. People go to concerts or people go to games or people you know, go to sporting events and stuff and pay the money because that means something to them. They want to be part of it. So I always assumed that if people appreciated what we were doing, that they would support it. And here we are 22 years later, still have money in the bank, We've been debt-free for the vast majority of our life here at GCA. We're actually pretty cheap to keep, which means even if the giving were to dry up, we'd still be able to meet in this building and keep going. It's really astounding and miraculous the way God has set us up here. But then years went by. And I try every once in a while to stop and, and look at what God has done and, and be thankful to God for allowing us to continue all these years and that people have supported us through all these years. But then just this last Wednesday, God showed himself again. Yes. And I have to tell you the story because even April when she walked in today said, did the leak get fixed? The reason we weren't here Wednesday night was because Jeff contacted me Wednesday morning and said that the city of Smyrna had called Jennifer because hers was the name and phone number that was listed with the city for this building and had said, uh, we've turned off the water at your building because you have a leak. And so I said to Jeff, I'll go up there. I'll see what's going on. When I got here, our parking lot was full of heavy industrial machinery and spools full of thick orange cabling. And, uh, and there were crews all the way up and down Hazelwood here digging madly along the sidewalk. 
and they were laying Google Fiber. I found this out when I got here, found the foreman, and uh, he was the guy who discovered the leak. Now think about this for just a moment. The backflow filter, which is in that silver box out in the parking lot, had begun leaking. And when he showed me the leak, I mean, it was leaking. It was spray and water. Now, we'd have never known that because it's covered by that silver box. And it would have just been leaking like crazy until Tom said, you know, our water bill is really excessive. And so Google just happens to be coming to Smyrna. The whole city of Smyrna is apparently getting this, according to the foreman. They're laying wire everywhere. They just happen to be on Hazelwood. While they were digging out here by the sidewalk, they discovered that the ground was wet right there in front of our backflow filter box, called the city. The city came, took the cover off it, discovered that it was leaking. Now, we would never have discovered that leak had there not been Google Fiber digging in front of our yard at that very moment. Well, I called Tim, who is the fellow who was in charge of that backflow filter project 18 years ago. He reminded me that when we had it put in, we had to have a city-approved plumber come and put it in. So we had to find a guy to begin with who the city would be okay with. And then he told me, that the part, the backflow filter, has to be an exact match for the one that is taken out because the city already approved that one. So you can't just put any old filter in there. And it's not something you can just go to Lowe's or Home Depot and go get. It's a tough thing to get. He said, you might have to get it online somewhere. It'll take a little while. And then he said, we had to replace ours in our building a few months ago, and it took a week and a half in order to get that done. So it looks like it's going to be a tough deal. And so we start canceling Wednesday night and trying to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, Tim tells me, but I can give you the number of the approved guy who did ours, and you can at least give him a call and see if he'll come out and see you. Now, when I told Shane this story on Friday, I mimicked the fellow's accent for the amusement of Shane. And uh, he dared me to do the accent this morning, uh, which I'm not going to do. Uh, because we have listeners all over the place, and I'm not trying to offend anybody. But my goodness, was this guy Southern. That's all I'm saying, OK? So in any case, I called the number that Tim gave me. Tim says, don't worry, I'll call and let him know you're going to be calling. I call him, I tell him what's happening, I tell him about our backflow filter problem, tell him about the leak, tell him about the digging that's going on in our front yard, and he says, hang on, I'll put my shoes on, I'll be right over there. I said, oh, what, now? You're coming now? He said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. Turns out he lives in Smyrna, he had just come home after several projects to get lunch and just happened to be around the corner at that very moment that I called him. Wasn't that lucky? No. <laughs> and so he comes by. He takes a look at it. He says, yeah, this, this is going to be a tough one to get. He said, but let me check with my supplier in Murfreesboro. He calls a supplier in Murfreesboro, and then he looks at me, shakes his head, and says, nah, he ain't got one. And 
Oh, okay, so we're going to have to order it online. We're going to have to try to find this thing. And then he says to the guy on the phone, wait, what? He says, oh, it turns out he has one at the uh, Shelbyville location. And he happens to be going to Shelbyville right now, and he's going to pick it up. And he's going to bring it back to Murfreesboro. I'll pick it up this afternoon. I'll see you this evening. So wait, this evening? Anyway, 8.30 at night, Tom and I and he, Dustin was his name, are standing out by the curb putting in the new backflow filter. He's putting in the backflow filter. Tom's writing the check. I'm supervising. Um, And by 8.30 that night, all fixed. Everything is good for what could have been a really big problem at the beginning of the day. So every once in a while, it's like God just gives us these reminders that, oh, yeah, I'm still in this. I'm still for you. So 22 years later, happy anniversary to us. Happy anniversary. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very, very grateful for all these years and for all the people who have ever been a part of GCA who kept us going and all the folks on the internet who just keep rather graciously uh, providing for GCA and I'm just very very grateful turn to Galatians 3 the Greek word for the morning that I want you to become familiar with is anoetis I always get hung up on the Greek diphthongs Anoetis. You can hear the alpha negative at the very front of that word. The alpha negative takes any Greek word and turns it 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And the particular word that is being negated here is noeo, which is the word for thinking or exercising your mind comprehending things, to observe something until you understand it with the alpha negative in front of it. Not thinking. And that's the word that Paul used that is translated here, you foolish Galatians. The reason the English translations went with foolish is because it is the word that means you non-thinking People, why are you not exercising your mind? Paul is about to lay out a phenomenally logical argument. And it's a historic argument. And it's a scriptural argument. And he expects that people are going to hear this argument, logic it through with him, and then be able to comprehend it and think about it. So you non-thinking Galatians who has bewitched you. Okay, now this is a word that at its heart means to speak ill of somebody, to malign somebody. So by extension, it means to fascinate somebody, to catch their imagination by telling them something that is false. And in so doing... When you put it in a religious context, when you fascinate people with false information, 
you are actually maligning them. You're doing them damage. You're doing them harm. Well, that's the word that is translated bewitched. So you non-thinking people, why are you letting someone do harm to your spiritual welfare by fascinating you with false representations of what is true. The reason that he used that particular Greek word, and we just don't have an English word that is a one-for-one equivalent of that, which is why the English translation went with bewitch, but he has already said, there are some among you who are preaching a gospel that is not another gospel, that it is a false gospel. It is a fake gospel. It is a false representation of who Christ is and what he actually accomplished in order to drive you to think that he is not a fully sufficient savior, that now you have to come up behind him and you got to add your stuff. You got to do some law keeping. You have to be circumcised. And so Paul is saying, How can you be so not thinking after hearing everything I've taught you, after knowing everything that I have already shown you, and knowing that the Holy Spirit of God is among you, has occupied you, proof genuine that God is in the enterprise of saving you at this very moment? Why, when you have all that evidence... Would you let somebody malign you? Would you let somebody bring you these false representations? Why would you let someone bewitch you when you have all of this positive evidence that God is for you? Are you just not thinking? So it's a really strong argument. You non-thinking Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is saying, I've told you about the crucifixion. I've told you what the crucifixion means. I've told you what the crucifixion accomplished. I've told you about the crucifixion of Christ and his raising again from the dead. And when you heard that, when you believed that, when you embraced faith in Christ, you also received the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Christ has been publicly portrayed in front of you as your fully sufficient Savior. And yet, despite the fact that you heard it, that you know it, that you have the evidence of it, Nevertheless, someone came along after me, told you something else that was a false representation, and you're buying into it. Who bewitched you? Who made you stop thinking? I contend that Christianity is the most intelligent proposition in the history of human beings. I know a whole lot of people who are very smart, who know a whole lot of stuff about a whole lot of things. But if they don't know Christ, it's not going to go well for them eternally because they missed the most important thing in this lifetime. I also know people who don't seem to know much. And they know Christ. The thief on the cross knew one thing. He knew who to look to. He knew Christ. Everything else didn't matter. Christianity is the most 
logical succession of well-thought-out propositions in the history of religion on planet Earth. What I mean is this. Most religions want you to take things sort of on faith just because people say it, even though they don't have any evidence. Christianity has left you evidence. Christianity left you a risen savior and an empty tomb. Christianity has left you a history of prophecy that has actually occurred exactly like the Bible said it was going to occur. Christianity continues to prove itself over and over and over again. You would think anybody with a modicum of sense would look at all that evidence and then get it. And yet, because it is a revealed religion, the smartest people in the world seem to miss it. Only those who God reveals himself to actually get it. And once you understand the perfection of sovereignty and God's grace and salvation by grace through faith, once you know that, there's nothing to go back to. If somebody comes along and says, yeah, salvation by grace through faith, but also you got to have this. Well, that, Paul says, is not thinking because Christianity is definable. Christianity is logical. Christianity is historical. Christianity is prophetic. Christianity is revealed to us. Christianity has a tremendous amount of spiritual evidence. Here, I'll show you what I mean. Are you different now than you used to be? There. That's all the evidence you need, that God has changed you from the inside by his Holy Spirit. I mean, the evidence for Christianity is is just replete. So to abandon Christianity for something more thoughtless, for something that is a false representation of Christ, for something that is just another religion. To abandon Christianity for that, the only way you could accomplish that is by not thinking. I agree. You got to understand Christ, trust in Christ by faith. Faith is vitally important. Faith is a gift of God by his Holy Spirit. I agree. Faith is really important. So is thought. And that is why the New Testament is so full of doctrine and sound teaching. Paul talks so much about sound teaching, and the word in the Greek is whole, healthy, beneficial teaching. And he expects you to understand that whole and healthy and beneficial teaching because it will engage not only your heart and soul, but also your mind. Here, I'll put it this way. Are you likely to fall for a religion that makes, like, no sense whatsoever? Somebody comes along and teaches you that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo. And and you're going to go, what? Because it just makes no sense. Yeah, well, Christianity makes incredible sense. And so I have argued for 22 years here that Christianity is intelligent, It ought to be able to engage, occupy, fascinate the smartest human brains in history. And it has. And even the Apostle Paul 
who wrote so much of the New Testament ends up saying, I have not yet apprehended that that has apprehended me. It got a hold of me, and I'm still working my way through it. I think that would be all of our testimony, that the longer we're in this Christian thing, the more exciting and fascinating and interesting it becomes. And we read our Bibles, and we go, oh, that's new. I've read this passage 20 times, and something just leaped out at me that I hadn't even thought of before, because the Word of God has that ability to engage your heart and your soul and your mind. And that's what Paul is arguing here. That when you become unthinking, that's the only way you can be drawn away from the truth of Christianity. Somebody has to bewitch you, malign you, fascinate you by telling you false things. And if you don't discern that those are false things, it's only because you've stopped thinking. Now, Paul's going to use that same word again. Verse 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Since you do have the Holy Spirit, since you have seen miracles by the Holy Spirit, since there has been tongue-talking by the Holy Spirit, since you have all of this spiritual evidence that God is for you and you have been changed. You have been redeemed by the finished work of Christ. I want to know this about you. Did you receive that selfsame Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And the Galatians would have to agree that Paul did not come to Galatia preaching the law to them. What he came was preaching Christ to them, and by faith in Christ they received the Holy Spirit, sealing them for all of eternity. The Holy Spirit, the down payment for everything else that God has intended for us. And they received that Holy Spirit when Paul preached Christ and salvation through faith in Christ. And then having received the Spirit, Now these Judaizers have come along who are preaching legalism and law and circumcision to you. Why, if you already have the spirit, if you already have the seal of your salvation, why would you want to add law to it considering that law isn't how you started? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith? Are you so not thinking? Think about it. Logic it out. That's all he's saying. Think about what you just went through. You just went through receiving the Spirit of God. The God who made heaven and earth. The God who knows every star by name. The God who is busy keeping every atom spinning. Do atoms spin? The one who is keeping all of creation going is the one who deposited his spirit inside you. That's an astounding thing. That is a miraculous thing. And the proof, the evidence that he put his spirit in you is that you came to faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and and now you want to go back to something 
that never saved anybody. Now you want to go back to something that has only served to prove how guilty you are. And you think that's going to save you? You think that's going to help you? That's going to justify you? You're going to, bo- you're going to go before God and you're going to say, yeah, that Holy Spirit thing, that was helpful. But I, I really did my stuff. Are you so foolish? Are you so unthinking, says verse 3? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? By your flesh? That's everything I've been harping on up here. If you've already been saved by the Holy Spirit, if you've already been eternally redeemed by the finished work of Christ, and if your faith in Christ's finished work has accomplished full justification before God, then what more do you need? You're going to improve on that? You're going to fix that? You're going to get busy in your flesh? Just give me some rules. Just give me some laws. Give me one of the 613. Don't give me all of them. I can't do all of them. But give me one I can do. Give me that one about building a border on my roof. I can get up there and do that. Instead, Paul argues, are you so unthinking that having begun by the Spirit, that you're now going to be perfected through your own fleshly effort? Now, the Galatian church did suffer, just like all early Christians suffered for their confidence in Jesus Christ, for their faith in Christ. Among the Jewish believers, you know, they were often thrown out of the temple. Their businesses were ruined. And so, having gone through all this suffering, Paul asks the question, since you're turning away from Christ now and think you're going to do it by your works, did you... Suffer, did you experience, is the word, did you experience so many things in vain? If indeed it is in vain. If indeed you have turned away from Christ and turned to the law, Paul is later in this very same letter going to say, you have fallen from grace and Christ is no benefit to you if you're going to try to be justified by the law. And if that's the case, then the things that you have experienced because of your profession of faith in Christ is all vanity, it's all emptiness, it's all pointless because it's not going to get you saved. It's not going to be any benefit to you. And so have you really gone through all this for nothing? And that's what abandoning Christ in order to try to satisfy God by justifying yourself in your flesh, that's what it's equivalent to. It's a whole bunch of vanity, fleshliness, ego, pride, me, watch me go. I'm going to do it. God's not enough. Christ is not enough. It's all up to me. And it's ultimately empty. It's ultimately vacuous because you can't help you because you are your problem. But fully sufficient Christ is where you began and where you need to remain And that's why, for all these years, I've said over and over and over again, run to Christ. That's the only answer. It's the only place you're going to find any peace with God. 
and far too much religion in the world and far too much of what's called Christianity tells you that you can make peace with God through stuff you do. Unthinking and not paying attention to what the text actually says. So Paul is being adamant here, and that's one of the reasons that I'm being adamant. I'm trying to stress the adamancy, if that's a word. It is now. I used it. Once uh, someone came up to Elder Ward after he had made up a word, and they said, Elder Ward, you made that word up. And he said, all words are made up. (laughs) So I'm going to go with that. I mean, he was being adamant on purpose, and I'm trying to drive the character of the words that he wrote here so that you understand that the distinction that he is drawing is, is just as black and white as it can possibly be. They are polar opposites. You were either saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, or you're trying to justify yourself through your flesh, through the law, And if you're doing that, Paul says, you've been bewitched. You're not thinking. The only way to get to God is through Christ. Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, you can read that verse and say that Paul might be referring to God. He might be saying that it is God who provides you with the Holy Spirit, and then works miracles among you. But Paul also was the one who was showing, demonstrating these things among the Galatians. So does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? When Paul came in and did some miracles, when they were speaking in unknown tongues, when he was healing people, did he pronounce the law and then people got healed? That's his point. Well, no. These miracles were done because of the hearing of faith. Hearing in what was actually accomplished on the cross. That's why he said, Christ has been publicly portrayed as the crucified one. He accomplished the payment for your sin debt. He has fully redeemed you. He has accomplished all of that. So then, if that got you the Holy Spirit, if that got you miracles, if that accomplished everything you need then the evidence is right in front of you. I didn't come and teach you about the law. I didn't come and you receive the Holy Spirit by the teaching of the law. I didn't come and do miracles by the teaching of the law. God did not participate in any of that because of the teaching of the law. So again, think. Think about it. If the law didn't accomplish that, why do you need the law? Or, more importantly, why do you need... To accomplish your own justification through your own flesh if you are fully justified because of the finished work of Christ. Isn't that logical? Okay, now, starting at verse 6, and for the rest of this chapter, really, Paul is going to talk a lot about Abraham. 
Before we began this study in the book of Galatians, I took one Sunday and we just talked about the covenants in the Old Testament in order to prepare us for reading the book of Galatians. But we're really going to have to spend some time now talking about Abraham and his history because Paul is assuming that some of his audience know this history. What he's going to do in a moment is prove that to the Jews, who are the direct physical descendants of Abraham, he's going to prove to them that just being connected to Abraham genetically is not sufficient to get you salvation. You might recall that when Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees and the Jews, and he said, uh, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. We are Abraham's seed. And that argument, we are Abraham's seed, was tantamount to saying, we're God's chosen people. We're saved. We're good. Now what Paul is arguing is, you have to be Abraham's seed by faith, not just by genetics. And that's demonstrated, proven by the history of Abraham. So we're going to spend some time doing some Abrahamic history this morning. Let's start by turning to Genesis 12. Turn back to Genesis 12, and we're going to quickly recount the elements of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is going to be important for you to know in order to understand what Paul is about to write. Remember that in writing to the church at Galatia, he is writing to a largely Gentile church, but there are also Jews among them. And last week, we talked about Peter dissembling at Antioch. That Jew-Gentile distinction was still alive and well, and some of that residual Jewish anti-Gentile sentiment was still around. And so Paul is going to try to break down that wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles by demonstrating that all the way back at the Abrahamic covenant, there was a promise to the Gentiles. It's part of the covenant. It's part of the spiritual aspect of that selfsame covenant. Genesis 12. I think I gave you enough time to get there, starting at verse 1. Now Yahweh, the Lord, said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. All the families of the earth, not just your direct descendants. Now, in a moment, God's going to tell him, you're going to have a flesh and blood descendant. And I'm going to give this land to your flesh and blood descendants in perpetuity as an everlasting covenant. That's the very physical aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. But there is also this very spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant where through his seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Not just physical descendants of Abraham, but the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be blessed through Abraham. So 
Abram went forth exactly like God said. He ends up standing in a land where God says, I'm going to give this land to you. Go to chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since thou hast given me no offspring, one born in my house is going to be my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6, then he believed what the Lord said. The NASB says, then he believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two and he laid each half opposite the other But he did not cut the birds, and the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a terror and a darkness, a great darkness, fell on him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Raphaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite, All of that land belongs to Abraham and his descendants. Okay, so what am I trying to get you to see here? There is this very spiritual aspect to the Abrahamic covenant, which is through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And then there's this very physical aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, which is this land is going to be yours and your descendants everlastingly in perpetuity. I've given it to you. Now, it's very common for folks to say, boy, that first half, that spiritual half of the covenant, that's worked because we Gentiles at this very moment have faith in Christ just like Abraham did 
And so therefore, the spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is coming true right now and has been coming true for the last 2,000 years. And therefore, they negate the second half of the promise, the land aspect of the promise. The Bible never does that. The Bible never negates it. And in fact, later in the same book of Galatians, Paul is going to argue that no aspect of this covenant has been negated in any way. And so... Look at chapter 17 for a moment. Because now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I shall make you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants after you, and I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, there's the essence of the Abrahamic covenant, and you need to know that, because back in chapter 15, verse 6, you read something very important, which is Abram believed God And then God counted it to him for justification. God counted it to him as righteousness. God reckoned him as justified for the fact that he believed what God told him. Now, there's a really, really important distinction. It does not say he believed God existed and then God justified him. Far too often people think they're going to be okay with God if they just simply believe God exists. The devil believes God exists. Every demon in hell knows God exists. The demoniac at the Gadarenes, who was legion, a legion of demons, worshipped Christ when he appeared. And they said, "What, what are you doing here? They knew who he was. They weren't saved. They weren't justified. They were still demonic. And so just knowing who God is, or at least admitting that God probably exists, that's not sufficient to get you justified. What Abram did that Paul is going to pick up in the book of Galatians is that he believed what God said. God said to him, you're going to have offspring like the stars of the heaven, like the sands of the seas. And Abram amoned God is the Hebrew word from which we get amen. He amened God. He agreed with God that what God said, God also had the power to actually accomplish. And that's why God justified him right then and there. Okay, now important point. Was Abraham circumcised when God justified him? No. In fact, later, as God continues to expand on this Abrahamic covenant, 
he's going to add circumcision. Look at chapter 17 again. Look at verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But God did not implement circumcision until after Abraham was justified. It wasn't Abram's circumcision that got him justified. It was a sign of the fact that he was in covenant with God. See the difference? Okay, now Paul is going to utilize everything we just read over the course of his argument, his thinking, his logic, as he builds his case to the church in Galatia, he's going to argue these very things. So he's arguing, and I like this, from Scripture. That's really important to recognize. He's not making anything up. He's going back and saying, well, this is what God has already said. This is what has already happened. Turn to, in the New Testament, to Romans 5. We need to get a little bit more of Paul's theology of circumcision and whether circumcision is necessary or important. I think I just said five. I probably mean four. Turn to Romans 4. This is indicative of Paul's thinking of Gentiles and circumcision and the historic context of circumcision. Starting in Romans 4, verse 1. What are we going to say then that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? We just read it. It says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I like the fact that the NASB here in Romans didn't say he believed in God. He believed God. He believed what God had said. Which is why if God says the only way to get to me is through my son, you're required to believe that. If God says justification is accomplished by the finished sacrificial work of Christ on the cross, believe that. And if you believe that, you get justified for that. And Paul is arguing here in Romans, all the way back to Abram, that's how it happened. So before the law came, before Moses, at the prediction of the 400 years in Egypt, when they were going to be delivered out by Moses, at the beginning of all of that, when God first encountered Abram, He started telling him seemingly impossible things, and Abram believed God, and God (coughs) counted that to him as righteousness. So if that's all the way back in Genesis 15, then this is a firmly biblical Old Testament concept. So he's going to get to, well, then why was the law added? He's going to get to that. But what he's arguing is that the law cannot justify And it didn't justify Abram. Why do you think it's going to justify you? For what does the scripture say? It says, and Abram 
Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his payment, his wage, is not reckoned as a favor. It's reckoned as what is due. If God is going to save you on the basis of your works, then you are obligating God. Look, if you work all week, and then you go to get your paycheck, and your boss says, all right, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to pay you. You know, hang on. I did the work. You owe me. That's what Paul is arguing here. To the one who's actually working, well, then what he receives, his payment, his wage, isn't reckoned as a favor. It's reckoned as what is due. But to the one who does not work, follow this, but to the one who is not trying to justify himself by the works of the law through his flesh, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Do I have any ungodly people in my midst? That'd be pretty much all of you. You'll notice I did not ask you to raise your hand. Because then we'd all be able to point and jeer at the one who didn't raise his hand. And don't you hate it when the preacher tells you to raise your hand? How many of you hate it when the preacher... See, I got a few of you. Yeah, to the one, the ungodly one, who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And that's how it's always been. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, the words of David are, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Boy, that is a big blessing, isn't it? I would have to say that's a blessed man. Anybody here guilty of any lawless deeds? Any transgressions? Any sins? Well, what a tremendous blessing knowing that you cannot, by the works of the law and by your own flesh, that you can't be good enough to impress God or obligate God to save you. Since you can't do that, once you come to that reality that you are incapable of saving yourself or convincing God to save you on the basis of your own flesh, what a phenomenal blessing to understand the grace of God that covers your lawless deeds, that forgives your sins. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will not take into account I love God's blessed forgetfulness. I'm glad, as was read, that he's going to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. What a grand idea. Verse 9, is this blessing then upon the circumcised, that'd be the Jews, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say... Faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. So we're arguing that it was faith in what God said that was the reason that righteousness was reckoned to Abraham. Verse 12. So then how was it reckoned? 
while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Paul's argument is that means that gift of righteousness for faith is available to both the circumcised and the uncircumcised because Abraham was justified when he was uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. And so he is the progenitor, he is the father, he is the spiritual leader of all us uncircumcised Gentiles who have faith in Jesus Christ. He was, after all, the first uncircumcised Gentile to receive righteousness in exchange for faith. So he is the prototype of what it is for Gentiles to be justified through faith. And, not only that, not only is he the father of the uncircumcised, but he is also the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, he's talking about the Jews, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So he's saying he is the first man justified by believing what God said. Justification was imputed to him as a result of faith in God. That happened while he was uncircumcised. But there is also this promise that through his physical seed, all of whom were supposed to be circumcised as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, through his seed, there was going to be this one coming through whom all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. So there is a circumcised group, and there is an uncircumcised group. And Paul does not do away with those distinctions. And remember, Paul is writing after the death, burial, and resurrection, after the cross. Christ has already risen up to heaven, and here he is continuing to make that very important national distinction between Jews and Gentiles, and saying that among the Gentiles... Abram is the father to all who believe without being circumcised. That's us. So that righteousness would be reckoned to us. And he is the father of the Jews, the circumcision. To those who are not only of the circumcision, that would be the group who argued with Jesus and said, we're Abraham's seed. And he's saying, no, you need more than that. You also need to have the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. Are you following Paul's logic? I know I started today by saying Christianity is just really logical, and it'll cause you to think. And if you think through it, you come to all these glorious conclusions. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world, all nations of the earth, was not through the law. I mean, the law came 430 years later. Law had nothing to do with the Abrahamic covenant. But it came through the righteousness of faith. For if those who were of the law are the heirs, the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, 
Well, then faith is void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there any violation of the law. For this reason, justification is by faith, so that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promises may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that would be the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Jew and Gentile, Abraham is our father spiritually as long as we have faith in what God has told us. Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. That's what we just read back in Genesis. It's written, a father of many nations have I made you. And in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, Abram believed in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which has been spoken. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, and yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform it. Therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So here is Paul's argument again, that uncircumcised Abraham, believing what God said to him, even though what he was saying seemed impossible, Abraham was good as dead. And his wife's womb was incapable of bearing children. And yet God says, someone from your own body is going to be your heir. You're going to have a child, that child of promise. And Abraham, according to Paul, believed God, didn't waver at it. Figured, you know what? You're God. You can do anything you want. And if you tell me we're going to have a kid, then we're going to have a kid. And God counted that to him as righteousness. Therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, verse 23, here's the application. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was to be reckoned to him. That righteousness, justification was going to be reckoned to him rather than him accomplishing it. It wasn't just for his sake that that was written down. It was written down, according to verse 24, it was written down for our sakes also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised to accomplish our justification. That's smart. That's well thought out. That is a great and logical scriptural argument. And you can't fight with it. Galatians 3. Verse 6. That's where we left off. Even so, Abraham 
believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the offspring of Abraham. As the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Did you follow Paul's argument? He's not done talking about Abraham. He's going to point at Abraham again and again as an example, which is why it's necessary for us to have a good comprehension of the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promises, the physical promises, and the spiritual promises. But what I want you to come away with this morning, which is the essence of Paul's argument to the Galatians, is that you cannot, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many of your supposedly good works you bring before God, you cannot be justified before the absolute holiness of God through your works, through the law. Paul's going to argue that the law was given so that sin would appear all the more sinful. Not only were you rebelling against God and trespassing against God, but then the law comes along so that you would know that you were doing that. The law was never for the purpose of justification. Justification comes one way. The same way it came to Abraham, it's the same way it's coming to Gentiles today, it's the same way it comes to you. Through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that was demonstrated all the way back at Abraham. It is a thoroughly biblical concept, and it is the very essence of the phenomenal grace that God bestows on us that he would allow us to be justified by faith in the finished work of his son. Don't be unthinking. Don't be bewitched. Don't let anybody, no matter how well-dressed and erudite they might be, no matter how big a church they might have, no matter how big a voice or a platform they might have, as soon as they start telling you what you got to do, they're bewitching you. Walk away. Back to the Word of God, go back to the Bible, stand firmly on Christ and His finished work. You got it? Amen, sir. Then I'm done. And oh, yeah, happy anniversary.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.